Hey, what's everybody? Welcome back to the Car Tech Garage. We didn't have any uh, car noise in the opening. Ooh. Anyway, I guess we'll go ahead and talk about these weeks in automotive. There it is. There you go. <laughs> Just trying to keep you hanging there. I got to get my morning octane in. Come on now. Um, so let's go ahead and kick it off. We're going to do some weeks in automotive history. We're probably going to cover two. I know we've been very, very far behind as of late. Life's been busy. Um, but we're going to try and play a little bit of catch up for you guys. Kicking it off November 7th, 1980. Um, acting legend and racing great Steve McQueen passed away, unfortunately. Um, I mean, Steve McQueen was one hell of a man, was he not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody remembers the, the scene, uh, the chase scene with the green Ford Mustang GT 390 sliding through the streets of San Francisco, chasing down that Dodge Charger. I mean, one of the, the greatest, if not the greatest car chase scene of all time. Hands down, not not even negotiable. Exactly. Plus. Yeah, and among other feats, I mean, McQueen and a partner, they actually took first place at the 65, uh, 12 hours of Sebring, uh, driving a Porsche. I mean, he was a collector of high-end cars. I mean, he was just the quintessential car guy. Um, and Brandon, you'll like this. He owned a 1962 Cobra. Oh, God. Yeah, Brandon, <laughs> Brandon likes Cobras. Brandon likes Cobras oh. a lot. Um, now, he no, actually— Well, not, not Ford Cobras, you know, just the Shelby version. Yeah, so yeah. You like early, the early to mid sixties before? Well, I was still under the Shelby name. Yeah, not not the Mustang Cobras, but and not not the rendition. But yeah, he, whenever he sees even a kit car, obviously that's pretty much all you'll see. But I'll take one gladly. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, there. I've priced it out. <laughs> I've priced. It's it only out. like sixty grand. <laughs> only that's only that's that's like the price of a regular old BMW nowadays. <laughs> like I can make that work. I just need someone to put it in the engine, put the four tires on, put the transmission in, and then we're golden. Then we're off to the races. <laughs> we're off and running. <laughs> oh man, yeah, Cobra is definitely one of my favorite cars of all time. Yeah. Now, Steve uh, didn't go out how he probably would have thought. Because he actually passed away undergoing experimental surgery in Mexico for mesothelioma. Really? Yeah. Couldn't get it done in the in the good old US of A. So he pops south of the border where, you know, somebody said C and yeah, they, they went in with the scalp. Differently down there. Yep. Well, it is what it is. But he's gone now. Um, November 8th, 1909, <laughs> the 200-kilometer-an-hour land speed barrier was broken by a French driver named Victor Heimery. He was driving the Blitz and Benz, a 21-and-a-half-liter four-cylinder, um, a car that had broken numerous speed records. Barney Oldfield himself even bought one just because the, uh, you know, the old racers of the past just couldn't keep up with this new Blitz and Benz. Of course. Yeah. I mean, a 21-and-a-half-liter four-cylinder. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a, like an avalanche going down the road. It's just unbelievable, guttural, percussive noise. Um, hand grenades. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the kind of feeling that uh, you're on a roller coaster and you just feel that thing in your stomach, even though you're not even driving it or riding it, you just feel it 300 yards away. Yeah, the, the percussion and vibration just, I, um, I always love to watch the video of the Blitz and Benz running at Goodwood Festival of Speed mm-hmm. and just turn your speakers up, guys. It is so good. So make sure you don't have headphones on. Yeah, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> just right. a fair warning to, yeah, to anybody's health. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, November 9th, 1969, 52 years ago, 
Bruce McLaren drove his M8B Chevrolet to victory at the final Can-Am race of the year in Texas, taking the championship. Now, McLaren won all 11 races that season, absolutely dominating the Canadian American Racing Series. Um, So I know it's kind of a funny story because Bruce McLaren um, is actually from New Zealand. Not a lot of people know that he's a Kiwi and um, the company, you know, was ultimately based in Britain, uh, still is to this day. But um, yeah, they they were absolutely dominant in Can-Am racing. That was, of course, until Porsche stepped in with basically a briefcase full of money and muscled everybody out (laughs) with horsepower. Um, It's so weird how just money can buy happiness and wins. I know. Well, the Germans have a very particular skill set at turning money into horsepower. They do. They're so good at it. (laughs) So good at it. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. So anyway, um, let's see here. We got November 10th, 1914, 170 years ago. The very first Dodge came off the assembly line. If anybody's into those cars. Now this was just a little four cylinder Dodge model 30 and it was kind of marketed as a slightly more upscale competitor to Ford's ubiquitous model T. Um, but the cool part was Dodge, you know, had this reputation for overbuilding their cars more so, you know, than anyone else, because everybody else, you know, met people's needs and not much more, you know, they brought to market what they thought was acceptable and tried to make it profitable. Dodge had a different system. Dodge had a different, um, paradigm of thought. They said, we're going to build the best damn car we can. We're going to overbuild everything and just show everybody else that our car is more durable, more reliable, and has better common standard features. So they pioneered the 12-volt electrical system. Everybody else was just running a 6-volt at the time. Um, 35 horsepower. They did it all steel body construction, which was a first for passenger cars at the time. Everybody else was still you know, using wood and, and other materials and binding it together with steel plates. They did all steel body construction, which meant that this, you know, Model 30. Um, it was a tank. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> comparatively, it, it, it truly was. It's, it's hard to think that nowadays every single car company and every single car is trying to upsell you on all the different features they have, like, you know, cooling seats, heating seats, uh, Bluetooth, all that jazz where in the old days it was, it gets you from point A to point B. You should be happy that it does. (laughs) Yes. Like what more do you want? (laughs) But that brings up a good point because nowadays people market features Mm -hmm. and people don't market reliability like they used to, you know, people used to market, you know, you could have all these features, but don't you want something rugged, dependable, usable, utilitarian? Nobody markets that anymore. And, no, and frankly, it, it should be because people have, have lacked care in it because everything seems to be so temporary when you purchase something, phones, cars, you know, it, it's only going to last three to five years. So why should I care about how it performs over a lifetime? That's where I love where they slide in the, the powertrain warranty and they don't even really touch on it. It's just like, it's there, but they don't really say it. And I always laugh at them because as you said, you know, reliability isn't a huge thing. So it's kind of one of those, yeah, we're going to guarantee this for life. But really what we're saying is if it breaks, we're going to fix it for you because we (laughs) think this is going to last forever, but it's not going to. (laughs) Fingers crossed it might last. (laughs) Well, I mean, in all fairness, cars of today typically last longer and have less failures than cars of the past. Now I say that, but you have to take it with a grain of salt because we are starting to move away from that, mm-hmm. especially in the last five to seven years, everything's gone turbocharged. And I think, in my opinion, you can fight me if you want on it, but you'll lose <laughs> cars from 2008 
up to 2016, mm-hmm. I think are probably going to go down as some of the most dependable cars in history. Very, I'd say early, like two thousand, mid two thousands. I'd say to like two thousand, mid two thousand. So like the two thousand one to like two thousand six or seven. And, and yeah, and, those, and truly, you're right. Um, I mean, then you get like the Toyota Camrys that are going three. 300, 400,000 mm. miles and exactly. not breaking a sweat. Well, that's also been a testament to their time on the road. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. And I also take away from it too, that there's also a kind of an asterisk behind that detail because obviously we're talking about cars that are way back in the day, some of the mm-hmm. first vehicles, but looking in today's standards, like look at how little components were actually on these old cars. And even 10, 15 years ago, we're now you've got, modules and electronics for everything. So there's so much more failure prone components in a vehicle in a way, because in some ways, all of those modules offer simplicity. You only have, you know, there's so much less, um, wiring in a car nowadays. People Mm -hmm. actually don't realize that cars from 10 years ago had double the amount of actual copper wiring in them because now since we have everything contained in these separate modules that do more with less, you know, you in some ways have more direct replacement of items. Now the cost goes up. That's what I mean is that now, you know, instead of just you had your AC, you know, night, even rear view cameras, those are something that can fail. Your blind spot monitoring, yep. even basic, you know, systems that are safety that have been implemented over the last few years. Like now you're adding all of those safety mm-hmm. items. Now you're adding touch screens and multimedia displays and amplifiers. And and it's the point where it. you can't even market a car in the U S unless you have all that. Exactly. And some of those safety features are becoming mandatory, which I don't think is a bad thing, No, not but at it all. certainly adds to the initial cost. It adds to the eventual repair cost as well. And the overall complexity of the vehicle, if they sold a brand new 2002 Camry, I'd buy it. I'd buy it over oh, a new one. Obviously, you know, co- comparable price. I mean, you know, I, a 2002 Camry wasn't $40,000 like a new one is. So no. what's it, 15? 12 or 15 brand uh, new? Yeah, it was like 20. 20. It was probably it was 20? around it was 20. Like 20. Mm-hmm. Probably around 20. Probably like top tier 20. Okay. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I, I think those cars are probably still worth it in the market. Yeah. Even, though, the, even though they're outdated and some would say antiquated. They work, they work well, and they do everything you need them to do. And what cracks me up is talking about the OG Camry. Like, if you wanted a rear view camera and a touchscreen radio, you could pretty much at home yourself, even with very basic mechanical, you know, knowledge, put a radio in and a rear view camera on your license plate. And there you go. You got pretty much the same standard that's on a brand new car with an old car reliability, and you know what's added to it. That, that's kind of where I, why I always recommend General Motors trucks. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and in fact, new Dodge trucks, I still recommend them over the EcoBoost oh, just yeah. because they at least have a somewhat tried and true design, something that's been proven over time. But we'll go ahead and move forward again because we still have a lot of content yeah, to clear up here. We have to skip over a few things. But November 12th, 1965, 56 years ago, two brothers, Bill and Bob Summers, set a world land speed record. Now, at the, together, together, same time, separately. No, no. Bob was the daredevil driver. Okay. Bill was the lead engineer. Now, they went 409 <laughs> miles an hour, 409 miles an hour on the Bonneville Salt Flats. But they, in the midst of all of this rocket-propelled, land-speed racing monster um, you know, competitiveness that was going on in the world, they thought, in their minds, that that was essentially cheating. And the only way that you could really... Um, derive a legitimate land speed record for an automobile was to have the wheels powered by an engine. 
Mm-hmm. So what they did was set out to create one of my favorite land speed racing cars of all time, the Goldenrod. It was a Hemi powered hot rod and it got its name from the 57 Chevy gold paint the brothers used. Now, today the Goldenrod is on display at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn. Now, that being said, it was disassembled directly after because they got the engines on loan from Dodge. Oh yeah. <laughs> I know I've talked to you, I've talked yeah. to you about this one. Like wait, what? They had them <laughs> right. on they rent, loan. They, they rented, rented out the engine. <laughs> you've got rent and roll for your wheels and then you've got rent and go. Yeah, that'd be a good one to start. Exactly. So I mean, they they were always hot rodders. Um, and they decided to get serious about it. And in 63, they really doubled down. They found all the apartments and the equipment to build the right car. Um, and they agreed together that they would go faster than any man had gone with driven wheels. So, um, and, and that being said, in 64 and 65, that was when the jet engines came out. You know, that's when, you know. It started to get crazy. It started to get <laughs> crazy. You know, like Campbell came in, Donald Campbell, he broke, um, John Cobb's record. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff going on, but these guys wanted to stick tried and true to their Hemi powered hot rod. Now the golden rod was in fact the sleekest, lowest and narrowest racer in history. 32 feet long, 48 inches wide, 42 inches tall. So just a tiny bit higher than a GT 40. Yeah. It's not Which much of at course all. wasn't out yet. <laughs> now it had four, four 26 inch Hemis, four, four 26 Hemis on loan from Chrysler. <laughs> and they also convinced Firestone to donate specially built low profile tires. Mobile one provided the fuel and oil. And, um, they did a six mile run across Bonneville salt flats and broke the previous wheel driven uh, record held by, um, Malcolm Campbell. Um, isn't it when they do those records, like (laughs) it has to be like, uh, both ways and they take the average speed. So exactly. Wasn't one way they clipped out at like four twenty five. So, um, the first record four seventeen. So very close, but you're, you're hundred percent right. They have to run one way and then run back on the same way within an hour. Crazy. And if you can't run that second one, it's completely deleted. Now here's the coolest part. That record held until 1991, all the way until 1991, four, 426 Hemis kept that record until, um, this guy named Al Teague came in with a supercharged car mm-hmm. called the spirit of 76. And he broke it in 1991. Um, but it was just really cool that it held for that long, naturally aspirated. They had to give the engines back to Chrysler. And then when the Henry Ford museum bought the car, they actually bought more and they bought four new engines <laughs> and put them in there just to let them sit and collect dust. Um, which is really, really cool. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. November 13th, 1966, Mr. John Surtees won the final race of the inaugural Can-Am season. Um, of course he was in a Chevrolet powered Lola T 70, the very first series champion. Um, John Surtees holds a special place in my heart of hearts in terms of racing, because not only did he win the Can-Am season, he also um, raced an F1, and he is the only man to hold um, world championship titles on two wheels and four. Did you guys know that? I did not. Yeah. He's he's what we would call a badass. badass. (laughs) Certifiably. Certified. Get that stamp of approval. Yep. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so let's see. So a four-time motorcycle world champion, 56, 58, 59, and 60. And then um, he was also a Formula One driver. But yeah, John Surtees. Uh, let's see what we have here next. A uh, quick one, November 14th and 28th, BMW got into automotive manufacturing. At the time, they were just a motorcycle manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And they purchased this little motor car company called Dixie Motor Company, who actually just had a contract to build rebadged Austin 7s under the Dixie okay. uh, brand. And eventually, they started making sports cars and everything else. But we'll have to do a whole podcast on that sometime. It's, it's still wild to me that they still do make the motorcycles. Mm -hmm. Now they're not near as common as they, you know, like a Ducati or Harley Davidson or anything else around, but it's, it's weird to see a BMW logo on a motorcycle, even though they started as a motorcycle company exactly. and you see, you know, just three twenty eights and the M series. That's all you see nowadays. Yep. And they build great motorcycles. Like the S 1000 double R is a dream bike of mine. I love all of their ADV bikes. Oh, yeah. I mean, they build, truly some of the best motorcycles on the market. I mean, no doubt about it. Like it, would 100%. Be, it would be one. I've, I've always wanted a BMW motorcycle just so I can say I have a, a BMW motorcycle. I just, that's how much I like just how they look. All of them, all yep. of them do. Oh, they, yeah, they, they've won one hell of a bike. And I also love how they have a little bit of, or at least for a period, their asymmetry with their headlights. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I always love that about their bikes. I know the new S 1000 is symmetrical, but I, I still like the previous two generations S 1000 double R's just because just of that. weird off. It's that's, different. What I, that's what I liked about my triumph. It just looks a little bit weird, a little different. Kind of like me. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a, a, he's a weird little guy, isn't he? It's a head scratcher, <laughs> but a head turner. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it. All right, November 15th in 1927, 94 years ago, Harry A. Miller, one of my favorite race car designers, issued a was issued a United States patent for his front-wheel drive mechanism. Although he had already used front-wheel drive in his race cars by this time, Miller entered a front-wheel drive racer in the 1925 Indianapolis 500. Pretty cool, right? That is Didn't pretty cool. Didn't win. Of course. Didn't win. <laughs> Darn it, it did not win, <laughs> but his other cars did, you know, the ones that he built the right way. Um, they won an Indy 500 four times between 1926 right and 1932. And then cars powered by the engines that he had built have won the race a total of 12 times. Now, unfortunately he was a great builder, not a good businessman. He ended up selling the business to his uh, lead mechanic, Fred Offenhauser, who continued the company and was building race engines well into the 1980s um, with the Offenhauser race engine company. Um, but yeah, Harry Miller was the guy who designed the golden submarine, built a lot of good cars. He started out as a, a carburetor rebuilder in California, ended up having a knack for it. People would start building, you know, bringing their race cars to him to fix them up and to make them faster. And he was like, well, hell, I'll just build my own. And boy, <laughs> did he. All right. November 16th, 1937. Ferdinand Porsche was issued a U.S. patent for his torsion bar suspension. I know this might seem a little insignificant, but I always like bringing Porsche into the matter because Porsche is one of those brands um, and one of those men, uh, both him and his son, who have had such a drastic impact on automobiles as a whole. I mean, permanently changing the way that we look at them, the way that we feel about them, the way that we drive and interact with automobiles and car culture, certainly. I agree. Absolutely has been heavily impacted. Now, torsion bars were really smart. Most of the credit um, for the wide acceptance of the torsion bars in Europe, in fact, goes to Dr. Porsche, who made it standard on most of his cars, beginning even with the Volkswagen prototypes in 1933. Huh. 
Now, the United States, by contrast, was very reluctant to go with this. In fact, um, in 1954, 21 different European car manufacturers were equipped with torsion bars. And in 1954, only Chrysler went to the torsion bar suspension on its large size cars because they said it was very expensive to manufacture. Now, what is a torsion bar? A lot of people don't even know what a torsion bar suspension is. If you have a Chevy Silverado. Oh, yeah. Chevy Silverado. Or any heavy duty truck, you look underneath and you see a couple of control arms but you don't see any shock, strut, spring, or leaf spring. You see this big bar that runs down to the midship. That is actually your spring. It twists the suspension up. Um, now, the good thing about torsion bars is they offer great rigidity, mm-hmm. a lot of strength. You don't have to worry about a coil breaking. It's actually a lot less likely for a torsion bar to break than a coil spring to break. It's the truth. Because it has less actuation. And um, a lot of it helped develop and propel metallurgy mm-hmm. as a whole. Because you have to get that exact specification of rebound and stiffness and rigidity um, through multiple temperature ranges um, to get a good torsion bar suspension. And even F1 cars of today, they've used torsion bar suspensions for quite some time now. Of course, they're about as big as round as your finger. Yeah. <laughs> but that's still a torsion that's bar suspension. There. Yeah. It's so much space savings. It's, it's really one of the best yeah. and simplest suspension systems out there. And how long ago was that? Uh, that was 1937 when <laughs> he was issued the patent. It's... It's so cool when things like that get made so long ago, but it was such a unique and brilliant idea that yes, people have, you know, tinkered with it to change it, to just make it a little bit better here and there. Mm -hmm. But the solid core of the idea is still there in the most modern cars around. I totally agree. I mean, that, that proves his genius. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if there's anything that does, uh, not that he needs a list of any people to prove his genius. Um, I like to feel that's qualified one. enough to say that, though. Yeah, there we yes. go. <laughs> yeah. None of us with any engineering degree whatsoever like, huh? Yeah, people have made it better over the years, but it was pretty okay. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> it was awesome. Scientifically. It still scares scares the living death out of me working on them, though. Oh, it's yeah. like on the big trucks. Oh, yeah. You pull the, you know, upper control arm off or you do it incorrectly. Let's put it that way. All of that weight and all of that torsion is loaded at any mm-hmm. time. So you pull off the wrong part, not knowing what you're doing told, and, oh. and something's going up in a very quickly yeah. manner. Yeah. You better not hope you're under it or, or so, have so your hand fortunately, in between. I haven't worked on too many of them, but every time I do, I'm like, it's just a oh, yeah. constantly scary. being under tension. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is only holding, scary. you know, a couple tons of, of weight and, you know, sprung. What could go possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> not a control arm through your forehead. That's definitely not it. No, can't, couldn't be. <laughs> yep. Things can go out of control yes. pretty quick. Yes. I, I see what you did there. I know. I always do that. Control arm <laughs> out of control. Ha, 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 we better ha, move ha, on. Ha, ha. Yes. <laughs> oh, it was funny. Um, I, we were, There was a customer at, at Almer's um, that had walked up to the counter and Steve and I were talking to him and he was talking about tire prices and then Steve just walks up, didn't even realize it. And he's like, yeah, well, I mean, the, the inflation at tire prices lately has been crazy. And then the customer and I at the same time are like, aha. <laughs> and Steve just <laughs> didn't get it. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. I was like, tire prices are inflated. Oh God. <laughs> like how have I not even thought of that yet? <laughs> oh man. 
You what I want was the customer actually did like the butt, but um, yeah. <laughs> and Steve still didn't get it. And I was like, it like being this customer just vibe, and I were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Steve is either a really amazing comedian and he just doesn't even know it, or Steve is so funny sometimes without <laughs> knowing it. Even make that connection. He really is. If I was there, I would have been in the back of the room dying in tears. He was. He was. <laughs> Brandon was. You know, he like, was I like, had my head in my hands. Like, oh, <laughs> can't believe he just went as there. As soon as he said that, he looked over at me, knowing I was going to acknowledge it. He did not expect the customer to acknowledge it at the exact same time that I did. I was like, oh, we got some some big brains in this room. <laughs> That's too funny. Uh, all right, um, November seventeenth, nineteen seventy one, fifty short years ago, the inaugural. 2,900-mile Cannonball Baker C to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash. They finally renamed it the Cannonball Run. Thank God. Thank God. Um, it started from Red Ball Garage in New York City to Portofino Inn in Redondo Beach, California, and it was won by Dan Gurney, inventor of the Gurney Flat. Even though it sounds dirty, it's not. <laughs> I do. It kind of does. <laughs> we promise. Yeah. The gurney flap is basically just that little lip at the end of the spoiler that assists with downforce. That, that's when it's called the gurney flap. <laughs> so he started, Dan Gurney's a race car driver. He's, he's yes. uh, at the time, he, w- he considered himself a retired veteran of international racing. And his teammate was um, Brock Yates, uh, who was the senior editor of Car and Driver magazine. Now, okay. they did this in a Ferrari Daytona Coupe, gorgeous car. Um, 35 hours and 54 minutes, um, 35 hours and 54 That's minutes. I mean, th- that entire thing cross country. Can you look up real quick what the current, cause it, I feel like somebody beats it it's every like, other weekend. Some guy under, just did it on a motorcycle in like eight hours or something crazy like it's that. It's under, I know in a car, like under 23 hours, I think. 24, 23. He's going to get us some some stuff while we're covering the rest of this. But there were a lot of entrants in this one because this was obviously pretty illegal um, or oh, is illegal highly. today. But what they were doing was very illegal. They were only 53 minutes faster than the second place finisher, which was a Chevrolet sports van. That's crazy. <laughs> so I, 53 I minutes answer. faster than the van. Um, what is, what's what's the, current? the current? So uh, an unnamed team. Oh, of course. <laughs> Using a, ni- a 19 Audi A8 with uh, fuel yep. tanks ratcheted to the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> cheese is under the sauce. <laughs> the cheese is under the sauce. <laughs> they did it in 26 hours and 38 minutes. Oh, wow. Well, there's some guy that just did it on a motorcycle, too. Um, 26 hours. That's crazy. Um, yeah. So they entered a sports van that got second place. Um let me see who I can't even remember who else was in here. There was a whole lot of uh, teams in here. Um, and Dan Gurney ended up winning it, of course, but there was only one, um, team that went ticket free the entire time. And it was ticket actually, it, it was actually, <laughs> it was actually the, um, so the, 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 four of the eight teams, um, or the, the total of eight teams received a total of 12 speeding tickets. And one of them went completely ticket free. Uh, one of the guys got six tickets, I guess, um, and the, the only people that went ticket free was the, um, it was the director of the motor racing safety society. And so he, he got out of a lot of tickets. Wow. No, no, no. He went the speed limit at all times. And I think they came in fourth. Oh, wow. Um, which was pretty impressive, you know, with everybody else being pulled over for that entire time. No officer. I swear this is for science. <laughs> I'm not speeding because I want to. I'm speeding because I have to. Yeah. <laughs> this is a competition here. You want me to lose? Now, Dan Gurney got the highest speeding ticket, 135 and a 70. 
That's how, do not, how do you not get arrested? Man, he didn't double down. This. Well, that was, I mean, this was back in the day. I mean, now you would definitely get arrested. This was in 71. I mean, should have doubled the, it down. The street laws were a little bit different. This was before Ralph Nader's book came out, Unsafe at Any Speed. It was just a different time. You just get the speeding ticket and roll on. Yeah, they didn't care. Um, nowadays, you'd get drug out of your car and taken straight For to jail. Three miles an hour. Straight to jail. <laughs> well, think, the fact that they did in a 1988 in 26 hours, they had to have gotten pulled over, right? Like, there's no, no way. There's no way they... Oh, no. Yeah, haven't a, lot of the, a lot of the current ones haven't. I mean, they, you they do seen radar the and, Radar, radar jammers. Detectors. Oh, they have radar jammers, yep. detectors. They have night they, vision. They, they camouflage have, the vehicle. So they'll like remove all the badges and everything. So like there's this one team that took an Audi. Um, I, I can't remember. I think it might've been an A8 or something. highly scientific. And, and they made it, they like, they put Ford badges on it and a front grill and all sorts of stuff. They made tape off look. the lights. So that way when somebody calls and reports it, they think it's a different car than it really is. Um, and usually they're going so fast at such a consistent rate of speed that by the time the call comes in, they're way far ahead and they'll be in a different state. Yeah. They're running like ways they're running Google. They're doing radar jammers, night visions. They have a scout that usually they're runs absolute with them. heathens. <laughs> the fact that this is how we use our brain power. Oh, absolutely. How can we not get a ticket? To beat this record. If there's a will, there's a way. Society. See, that's the thing. I mean, if, if all of these rules stay in place and are followed and guided by very strictly, how will we advance? Exactly. What rules are meant to be broken. Get out there and speed, kids. Don't do that. Please, <laughs> God, don't yeah, do that. No. Please, no, no, God. Don't do that. <laughs> oh, God. This is don't not life advice. <laughs> we are not life advisors. Officer, <laughs> Please officer do not you don't us. understand. The podcast told me to speed. <laughs> No, we're just a couple of car guys, man. You need to come up with something. You know how like all the financial advisors, any kind of guru like that is, this is not financial advice. I am not a financial advisor. <laughs> In this case, we are not life advisors, so do not follow what we say. <laughs> but if you do, you might have fun. <laughs> November 18th, 1979. Speaking to somebody who really likes going fast, Mitch Rister, Mitch. Oh, man. Mr. Richard Petty. <laughs> Mitchard, Mr. Eddie. <laughs> Richard Petty won his seventh series championship, a mark that would be matched all the way up until 1994 by Mr. Dale Earnhardt. Now, does anybody, I know you guys probably don't look at a lot of old NASCAR pictures, but you guys know that Richard Petty used to have an Afro? No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like it was, it was a pretty good fro. I mean, it was curly as hell. Now, all I've ever known is the big hat and the glasses, you know, that's all I've ever seen him in, in modern years. But I mean, for a guy to have 200 wins, and still take off the helmet and look and like he's got a fresh luscious perm. locks. I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, that's he, special uh, talent. Seriously, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, he has Go fast a, and look good while doing it. Oh, God amongst men. God amongst men. <laughs> Especially when he's got a steering wheel in front of him. That boy can drive. <laughs> and who cares if he's got an unfair advantage half the time? Still, it's a, minor details. Well, everybody was trying to cheat in NASCAR back in those days. That's he huge. was just. That's hearsay. Better at it than everybody else. Anyway, I think that's about all we wrapped up. Um, hopefully we haven't offended too many people on this particular <laughs> podcast. So I feel like we got a little bit rampant with this one. Um, anyway, uh, feel free to subscribe to our podcast. Be sure to rate it. Leave us a review. Um, we'd love to hear a little bit of feedback from you guys. And, you know, thanks for listening to the Car Tech Garage. You guys are awesome. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye.